Hello, everybody. This is Maria and welcome to the Fitness Fertility Podcast. Just so you're aware, this is part two of our fabulous interview with Jessica Burke, the fertility detective. In this episode, you will hear the answers to so many of the questions that you sent in to us. They cover everything from endometriosis to working out around fertility. So we really hope that the answers help you with the questions that you have. Now, if you haven't listened to part one yet, I would strongly suggest you go back to last Friday's show, start with part one, listen through our amazing conversation, and then come back to part two and have a listen. But we hope the whole interview helps you and we wish you all the very best for your own trying to conceive journey. Hi, I'm Maria. And I'm Roisin. And welcome to the Fitness Fertility Podcast. This podcast is all about how improving your physical fitness can help support you on your very own fertility journey. I'm a personal trainer who specializes in training women with fertility problems. I myself have PCOS and have had two beautiful boys, and I'm on a mission to help you do the same. Before we get into it, we will be discussing adult themes, such as where do babies come from, pregnancy loss and bereavement. We may also be sweary from time to time. We are optimistic, light-hearted girls, but we know this is a really stressful time for some of our listeners. We respect that. In this week's show, I am delighted to welcome Jessica Burke, aka the Fertility Detective, to the show. With almost 20 years of clinical experience dealing with fertility issues and pregnancy loss, Jessica has gained a reputation for helping people to succeed where everything else has failed. Jessica is a TEDx speaker, co-author of The Guilt-Free Gourmet, and regularly appears in Irish media. She has featured as Ask the Expert on herfamily.ie and rollercoaster.ie and is the creator of the groundbreaking Making Sense of Miscarriage program, which offers detailed, evidence-based support for those who have suffered pregnancy loss, as well as the Fertility Reset 2.0, a self-paced course that covers the key information needed to optimise your fertility potential. As your fertility detective, Jessica's goal is helping her clients to get pregnant and stay pregnant. Jessica, welcome to the Fitness Fertility Podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So Jessica, in this part of the show, I am so excited because we are once again delving into our post bag and we have been sent so many amazing questions and I cannot wait to ask you some of them today. Now this first question is one of my favourites. This comes from Steph and Steph would like to know when it comes to the fertility journey there are so many things that we cannot control and this is really stressful. When it comes to optimising our fertility what are the things we can control to try and make our next round of treatment a success? In terms of the things that people can genuinely do that will make a difference, here's the surprising news. It's the simple stuff and it's not sexy. And most of these things are free, but we don't do them. <laughs> okay. So um, this is where it becomes a harder sell. You know, people want to be sold on the basis of give me the quick fix, give me the pill I can pop. And of course, that can be done with ovulation meds to get you ovulating or give me the miracle supplement doesn't really exist. But people might want to go that route and therefore overlook, unfortunately, the simple, basic biological principles that our bodies have been defined by for millennia. 
top of that list would be sleep. And it has improved. Certainly, we are learning more about it. It's more in the zeitgeist in terms of discussion. It's not like it was back in Celtic tiger days when I remember people bragging about, sure, I only need four hours sleep a night and I can run the country. We now know that the effect on your brain when you have not slept sufficiently is akin to being drunk. (laughs) So who wants anyone making decisions in that state? But if you're talking about fertility, the impact of lack of sleep on a regular basis affects the sleep hormone melatonin. And melatonin acts basically like a major antioxidant within the body. And this has an impact on egg quality. So much so that it has come up in the research in recent years, the idea of actually prescribing melatonin to those with eggs to support the quality. So sleep is key and it needs to be consistent. And how does this impact shift workers, you might ask? Enormously, enormously. So there's a reason why I've seen so many nurses, doctors, engineers, you know, people who might work alternate or air hostess or stewards would be impacted by this. And it can be very difficult. And sometimes they to look at a span of time where they change their shifts if they're preparing for a cycle, let's say. So sleep is a foundational one. Same would apply for daily movement. Notice I said daily movement. I didn't say CrossFit. I didn't say flinging yourself into a spinning class, right, every two minutes and exhausting yourself. Um, as I'm sure you can relate, Maria, um, going to the gym and everything. It It is about changing our ethos about what it means to move. And that includes, you know, I'm very aware of this, given my work essentially can be quite sedentary with sitting in front of a computer screen, but building in time to in between consults to get up from the chair. Frankly, I don't think I could sit for much longer than a few hours anyway. I get agitated. I need to move. But really important to note that if you can just get up and move around, Go upstairs if you're at home, if you're working from home, um, you know, put the washing on or something. Or if you're at work, you know, find something that you need to do that involves moving from one department to the next. That is really important. And all the usual stuff that you'd hear, taking the stairs, etc. It sounds so simple until you actually do it. And that's where I think having fitness monitors can help people sometimes because if it's tracking their steps and they might realize, oh, my goodness, I have done nothing. <laughs> I haven't moved today. And it's it's a reminder to go out for a walk in the evening, let's say. So movement is key. And then back to uh, nutritious diet. And absolutely, we could be here for probably until next year talking about different diets and etc. But I prefer to, instead of getting lost in the rabbit hole of all the areas where people disagree. So, you know, paleo versus vegan versus keto, whatever the diet plan happens to be. I prefer to look at where things converge. Where do they all agree? And where does the research point to um, that would show agreement? And of course, it's very important to prefix this by saying that everyone is unique. And I have no doubt in my mind in the next 20, 30 years, I don't think it's even that far away, it's already happening, that we will have testing that will enable us to see what is the genetically perfect diet for our needs. Because we know there are differences based on different ethnic groups around the world. A large percentage, let's say, of Asian or African ethnicity would have lactose intolerance, for example, so therefore wouldn't do well with dairy. There are so many individual variables. But when it comes to diet, nutrition matters and it matters for the egg and the sperm. And unfortunately, a lot of people are sold this idea of should just pop this fertility generic brand multi and off you go. That'll cover you. You'll be fine, which completely ignores 
digestive concerns, IBS, IBD, obviously IBD is more serious, any problems like that, stress and its impact on digestion. So it's not just the foods that you eat, it's how you eat them. So if we're talking about simple takeaways, I like to keep it very simple with the four things on the plate. You want your carb, your fat, your protein, and what I call the extras. So the extras are the antioxidants, or it might be fermented fruit or vegetables. So, you know, having like kimchi or sauerkraut or something like that, which is part of so many cultures' natural diet, which supports gut health, assuming you can tolerate it. And focusing on the quality of what you're consuming. A very interesting TED Talk, actually, that I'd watched a number of years ago is from, I think, a professor from Stanford University. And he had put a lot of focus on diet uh, around the world. And he said of everything they found in the research, which is quite shocking, actually, the biggest impactful factor was whether people made the food themselves. Now, that's not to say everyone thinking, oh my gosh, I can't eat out. If you were getting high quality food, obviously made in a reputable place, as opposed to just kind of grabbing that quick sandwich from whatever local shop. If you're getting high quality food, then you are likely to be doing better in terms of your nutrient intake uh, across the board and better balance of, you know, salts, sugar and uh, micronutrients. Those would be the key starting points, I would say, that obviously impact overall health as much as the impact fertility. I mean, this is the thing. People go, oh, that's not very specific. I'm like, well, it is because <laughs> overall health impacts fertility. Uh, the two cannot be separated. You're using all of my favorite words, all of them. So, <laughs> I, mean, I keep saying your health is your fertility, your fertility is your health. That's one of the things I keep banging on about. Consistency is key. And 2024, we're focusing massively on sleep. Obviously, I'm in full support of movement. Going to the gym and that kind of thing. It does help. It does. I have a question here from Michelle. Michelle, thank you so much for asking this question. What are the chances of egg donation working with stage four endometriosis? Now, that's a very good question. I was actually looking at the research on that just yesterday, I think, or the day before, um, because of a client who's in that situation. So first off, it's very individualized um, and we have to discern the difference between someone with stage four endometriosis who has had it operated on versus someone who hasn't. Okay, so if it's still in situ and dependent on to what degree it might be impacting their particular case in terms of pain symptoms, for example, I had a woman um, a few months back with stage four endo which was just shy of, of penetrating the bowel um, and penetrate the outer lumen layer. And so it was quite serious and she had to have the surgery performed. So if this person hasn't had surgery, but they're planning to proceed with egg donation, I would caution proceeding with the transfer. You can still go ahead, bear in mind, obviously with egg donation, you can go ahead with um, putting the egg with the sperm and creating the embryos if there is logistical stuff or timeline around that. But it doesn't mean you have to transfer it straight away. It could be very much, in this person's case, worth their while to perhaps get a second medical opinion in terms of the gynecologist they're seeing about, look, you know, to what degree internally do you see this impacting me? Because, you see, while it's outside of the womb, I can understand people's confusion. Like, well, why does this matter if it's outside? The problem is that the body knows it's there. 
and it raises inflammatory markers. Um, it's often debated in the literature, like which came first, the chicken or the egg. In other words, is the endometriosis arising because of raised inflammation or is there more increase in raised inflammatory markers because of the endometriosis? It's likely a mixture of the two. So when you have that going on, unfortunately, that can play into affecting implantation because implantation is an inflammatory event which sometimes surprises people to hear that, much like ovulation. But you have inflammatory markers whose role it is, is to support implantation. And if that delicate balance is skewed in any way, it can really reduce the odds of success. And we do also know that endometriosis is associated with a higher risk of miscarriage as well. So even if the implantation does take place, I would have some concerns there about the likelihood of the pregnancy continuing, which when you're investing so much emotion, you know, financial commitment, physical commitment as well still, because obviously you're having the embryo transferred back in, um, I, I do think would be worth reviewing that. Yeah, that's so, so helpful. The next one, I think we've managed to talk about fertility without really talking about periods. I mean, this is, yes. this is quite remarkable. <laughs> we've, we've got a whole show without using the word period. So I thought, let's bring in this next question. Yeah. Now, I'm sorry I don't know your full name. I think it might be Mary T. 1992. Her period is light. It's only one to two days. She's 40 years old. Should she be worried? Okay, so there's a few pieces to that question that would be missing in terms of what I would ask if I was presented with someone, but I'll explore them all just for anybody listening. A few things jumped to mind for me there. The assumption that might be made with a question like that is, oh, she's 40. So, of course, her periods are now shorter, right? Mm -hmm. That's often the assumption. But I would query, you know, had this person had a prior pregnancy and suffered a pregnancy loss that maybe resulted in a DNC, dilation and courage, which or ERPC, which is where they remove the products of conception. I didn't call it that, unfortunately. I know it's an awful term because during that blind procedure, it can actually damage the lining, which can lead to a condition called Asherman syndrome, which can cause lighter periods. So, and I, I bring that up because I had a client before who fell into exactly that category. She was over 40, had, had got pregnant, suffered a miscarriage, and then her periods were much lighter and even more infrequent. And anyone she tried to speak to about this, she was dismissed as like, well, what do you expect? You're getting older. So that's one potential avenue to explore. The other is obviously, uh, you know, what we talked about, the more simple one, which is that it's perimenopausal tendency, that there might be shifts in hormones that could be playing into changes in the period. Because to explain with the period and perimenopause, because when you mention that word, it scares the bejeebies out of everyone. And um, that is taking the time frame anywhere from five to 15 years prior to actual menopause, which is a full year without your period. So if let's say you take the average age of, of menopause, which is usually around 50-ish, if you're a year without your period at 50, that's full menopause. Whereas perimenopause could start anywhere back to your mid-30s. And indeed, of course, there are people who exhibit those symptoms in their 20s even. So it is possible, as I see with premature ovarian insufficiency, those cases that um, they might have signs showing sooner. But so for this person, I would recommend getting full blood panel. Definitely, you have to check in on all of your hormones, FSH, LH, estradiol, prolactin, very important because prolactin can affect things. Of course, check your progesterone a week prior to when your period would be due is usually best to get a gauge because everyone would ovulate at different times. So the day 21 bloods can be misleading. 
that's assuming now she's still having a regular cycle along with the lighter bleed, if you get me. That would be important. Also, make sure a smear is up to date. Make sure that there's no subclinical infections, anything knocking around that shouldn't be there that might have impacted the endometrium. And any changes to diet or lifestyle, if that person has maybe made big changes to their diet or curtailed calories, I've sometimes seen that play into issues with lighter bleeds as well. Lots to explore. Now, Marissa has also written in, is it a waste of time to try to conceive naturally at 39 years old with endometriosis, a low AMH and one blocked tube? Wow, what a fantastic question. Thank you, Marissa. Great question to choose, actually. Because of course, as you'd imagine, I'd say absolutely not. But provided, again, that you are operating with all of the information that you need to both succeed, have the best chance of success, and indeed to make informed decisions about next steps. Okay, so there's so much that could go into this. So for someone who's 39, as you said, endo, one block tube, low AMH as well. So for someone in that category... I suppose if they were presenting to me as a client, this is what I would ask. The first question I'd probably ask is, how many kids do you want? Big question, okay? And not everyone has the answer. And very often I can see people kind of, if I'm dealing with a couple, they sort of look at each other and go, oh, we need to have that chat. I'm like, that's cool. You talk about it later. Because it would inform your next steps. It would change what you might do next. Because for someone who's 39 who says to me, I would love three kids. That's my dream. That's my goal. And they've got that history of the low AMH, the endo and one block tube. I go, okay, that's a great goal to have, but we need to be pragmatic here. In which case, in all likelihood, I would want to prep them for proceeding with fertility treatment with the goal of having frozen embryos for use in the future. Because while, of course, she could conceive non-assisted and go on to have a healthy pregnancy, no bother at all. You know, fast forwarding then, she'd probably be looking at maybe being 41 before coming back to trying to conceive again. And nobody knows. I mean, the amount of secondary and tertiary fertility cases I see, nobody knows how their pregnancy is going to go, the health of their child, whether they'll be up all night and exhausted and just not physically capable of trying to conceive again for a good while, even if they had it in their heads that they might try with a six-month-old. So that is really important, that that a person has that opportunity to make that decision for themselves about, oh, okay, because the last thing I want for anyone is to have regrets. I always want people to avoid that. Think five years ahead and look back. What position do you want to be in? And of course, they say, well, I want to be a parent. I'm like, well, that's great. But, you know, we have to account for, you know, I've seen those cases where they got pregnant at 39, 40, 41, whatever age it was, and then were desperate to add to their family, really yearning for another child. And that's heartbreaking. To this person, I would say, get in with a very good gynae. Not everybody wants to have a laparoscopy, totally understandable, or maybe they have a reaction to general anesthesia, whatever it might be, but make sure to have a really detailed conversation with a gynae about that to see to what extent it could impact your chances, because we know endo that's left in situ, it can impact egg quality as well as implantation miscarriage risk. So you have to evaluate that. Number two, low AMH. I would recommend going, I have a whole bubble highlight reel on this on my page on Instagram because of the amount of questions I get about this and the amount of misinformation that exists. A low AMH result, which stands for anti-malarian hormone, which gives you the vaguest approximation of antral follicle count, does not tell you anything about the quality of your eggs. It does not. And that has been 
proven time and time again in recent meta-analysis papers, which is a pooling of the studies in 2021 and 2022. So do not focus on the low AMH. Make sure that you're looking at all your other hormones in totality. So, you know, I listed off the FSH, LH, estradiol, prolactin, full thyroid panel with the antibodies, looking at your nutrient levels, making sure that any background secondary health conditions, medication, anything you might be taking is also being brought into the conversation as well. That's really, really important. Finally, the blocked tube. So that isn't automatically a problem. In the research, you can have what's known as transmigration of the ovums, which basically means the egg can hop on over from one ovary to the other side and go down the tube that's open, right? So that can happen maybe about 25-30% of the time. But you don't want to be relying on it. And specifically for non-assisted conception, whenever I'm dealing with a case like that, it was a block tube, what I want to know is, how often are you actually ovulating from the side with the ovary that's beside the blocked tube? Okay, because while yes, it can hop on over, you know, 30% isn't 100%. That, that's not enough of a chance. I don't want someone to be wasting their valuable time. So I would usually send someone for transvaginal ultrasound scans, also known as follicle tracking scans, to basically see what's going on. Because the ovaries usually take turns, but not necessarily fairly. Okay, so you might have a dominant ovary. So if you have a dominant ovary on the side with the blocked tube, that could greatly reduce your odds of success and might push you to make the decision to go for fertility treatment uh, potentially a bit sooner if you could see that essentially the, the odds of the egg and sperm meeting was going to be greatly diminished. So those are the things I would recommend. And um, yeah, hopefully she'll have success this year. What I love about what you're saying is when you explain the basic biology behind it, it makes sense. Yeah. If the dominant one is the one that's blocked, you're like, well, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, yeah. fine. It's like a plumbing issue. Okay, exactly. Great. That's how I describe it to people. How do we fix it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's a problem with your plumbing. We need to fix it. I love that you can explain it in a way that's relatable and understandable. I'm sure that's why people come to you because it just makes so much sense. And speaking of that, I have no doubt people will want to find you if they are not following you already. Where can our lovely listeners find you? Well, my name's Jessica Burke, aka The Fertility Detective. You will find me at The Fertility Detective on Instagram. I do a regular Fertility Friday Q&A, um, my email newsletter, and then obviously I do one-to-one support or my programmes. And actually I'll be at the Fertility Show as well in the RDS coming up in March if anyone's around. And I'm aiming to be over the one in the UK as well. So yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be a busy year. Thank you so much, genuinely, from the bottom of my heart. Thank you for coming on. I know our listeners will be delighted. My own clients are very excited that you're here today. So a massive, massive thank you for giving us your time and all of your knowledge. And I'm sure it will help our listeners. So thank you for coming on. Not at all. You're so welcome, Maria. And thank you so much for what you're doing. Likewise, I love your work. And I think it's so (laughs) important to support people on this journey. We all need to be participating in this conversation, helping people. So thank you so much. Thank you. Listening to Jessica forensically go through those questions. I think we know why she's called a fertility detective. Oh, I mean, if you have a problem with fertility, Jessica will find it. She will hunt that problem down. She will do all the tests. She will figure out if your ovaries are working. And you can see kind of how she started off in the area of law, because like I said in part one, she is still fighting for equality and she is really fighting for your right to have a baby. And she is incredible. She's very smart. She's resilient. She's relentless. And you can hear from her voice, and I could see from the interview, 
that she genuinely cares and there is so much passion in her work and that really comes across. And talking about people being expert and forensic in their work, who will we be speaking to next week? Next week, I am delighted to say that we are welcoming fertility counsellor Tracy Sainsbury onto the show. And wow, this is going to be a fantastic interview. We will be talking all things fertility, all things therapy. Tracy is a very experienced counsellor. She supports people dealing with anxiety, depression, people considering conceiving, people trying naturally, surrogacy, basically every possible path to parenthood that you can imagine. Tracy supports people on that journey. It is going to be fantastic and I cannot wait to talk to her. Thank you so much for listening to this week's show. Remember to subscribe to get a shiny new episode each week and please rate, comment and really importantly share with your friends, especially our trying to conceive sisters. You never know who's struggling and may need that little bit of extra help. This may come as a surprise, but we are not doctors. We strongly recommend that you consult with your doctor before beginning any exercise or nutrition program. Get everything checked out first. Your safety is our priority. This has been a Worth a Listen production.